Welcome to Booked, where two true gentlemen doth vigorously discuss the literature which they voraciously consume. I'm Livia Snowden. And I'm... <laughs> I'm Rob Olson. Uh, the reason that Livius may be talking like that is because the book that we're going to be talking about in this episode is The Three Musketeers by Alexandre Dumas. Um, I've only been able to talk that way for like three days now. <laughs> it gets really awkward in public. Uh, you're like either uh, challenging people to duels or like professing your love or... Yeah. 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 Saying exactly. Purdue or whatever they kept saying. Anyway. <laughs> Pardue. Um... Here's, apropos. Yeah, yeah, apropos. All the time, apropos. Uh, here's a quick bio of Alexander Dumas that we pulled. I just pulled like the first uh, paragraph off of Wikipedia because um, there doesn't seem to be an actual normal bio on Amazon. And I think that's just because, you know, the dude was writing hundreds and hundreds of years ago or something. But anyway, here we go. Uh, Alexander Dumas was a French writer. His works have been translated into many languages, and he is one of the most widely read French authors. Many of his historical novels of high adventure were originally published as serials, including The Count of Monte Cristo, The Three Musketeers, 20 Years After, and The Victome de Bragalone, 10 years later. His novel There's going to be a lot of that this episode. There's going to be a lot of that. His novels have been adapted since the early 20th century for nearly 200 films. That's really poorly written. Wikipedia. Uh, Dumas's last novel, The Night of St. Hermine. St. Hermine? Hermione? Mm, Maybe sure. it's one of those Harry Potter <laughs> Unfinished at his death was completed by scholar Claude Schopp and published in 2005. It was published in English in 2008 as The Last Cavalier. I did not know that. There's probably a lot of things we didn't know about this book and or Alexandre Dumas. Um, here's a synopsis in the event that you have never seen. I'm guessing the most popular version is that fucking Disney one. The 90s. That's got like Kiefer like, Sutherland. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. Yeah. So in case you haven't seen that. Yeah. Perhaps the greatest cloak and sword story ever written. The Three Musketeers was published in 1844 is a tale for all time. Pitting the heroic young D'Artagnan and his noble compatriots Athos, Porthos, and Aramis against the master of intrigue Cardinal Richelieu and the quintessential wicked woman Lady de Winter, Alexandre Dumas has created an enchanted France of swordplay, schemes, and I know this says assignations. Assignations? Assignations, maybe? Assignations. I don't know. Assignations. Yeah. Could be. The era and the characters are based on historical fact, but the glittering romance and fast-paced action spring from a great writer's incomparable imagination. From the perilous retrieval of the queen's gift to her lover in time to foil Richelieu's plot to the dramatic revelation of Lady de Winter's true identity, The Three Musketeers is the unchallenged archetype literary romance and a perennial middleweight for generations of readers. All right, an assignation is an appointment to meet someone in secret, typically one made by lovers. Yeah, so that um, that happened a lot in this book. Lots of assignations. I need I need to lots have an of assignation. <laughs> Dude, just listen. Here's here's your ticket out of out of uh, uh, the your, your financial situation. Okay, you um, you create an app. And it's called Assignations, and see how well that does. <laughs> that can be a, a top competitor to, um, um, shit. I don't. Plenty of fish and Tinder. 
Tinder, that's the one I was thinking of. Grinder, that's another one, right? That's the gay one. Yeah, there's probably a lot more secret assignations in that one than there is in, like, uh, what's the religious one? Uh, oh, um, Christian Mingle? That's it, Christian Mingle, yeah. So, yeah. Why that's, do I, yeah. I've never, <laughs> yeah, all right, never whatever. used Christian Mingle. <laughs> Typically don't want to mingle with Christians. Oh, at all. yeah. So. Yeah, so but where to where to start, right? So why are we doing this? Um, this is a throwback episode. We didn't really mention that. It's our farthest throwback ever. Um, so from time to time, we want to read something we missed along the way, something that came out before this podcast. And 1844, by my recollection, is just a little bit before we started the podcast, so it qualifies as a throwback. Yeah, there was no way we were really getting this one like when it first released, and and this and it was probably a serial, so that would have kind of throwing us off anyway i think very true yep yeah um the synopsis is uh is interesting in that it basically assumes that you're very familiar with the story right so from a synopsis standpoint i think it does justice because really who who isn't at least somewhat familiar with the story of the three musketeers what i will say is i have two issues with the type three issues with the title of the book so let's start there first of all um for for guys that were musketeers, that would lead me to believe they carried muskets, right? Um, I mean that's what I I I guessed, yeah. but uh, obviously not because it and, takes and place although, in like the 1600s, right? Were there muskets yes. then? I believe so. All right, let's see history of the musket. Um, I guess my my uh, challenge to it is, um, there were almost no muskets. It was a lot of sword play, a lot more swords than guns. Yeah, and that's what they're known for. When you say when you say to somebody the three musketeers, the first thing they're picturing is a feather and a hat and a saber of some sort, right? So I guess my question this is <laughs> this is going to be a testament to our preparedness. Um, that that's not Dumas's fault as much as whoever like named musketeers like in French history, right? I mean, I guess. I guess the question is, were, were musketeers carrying around more muskets I, than I'm, he? I'm on the musketeer article on the on Wikipedia. <laughs> okay. Uh, was the type of soldier equipped with a musket? The musketeers were an important part of early modern armies, particularly in Europe, as they normally comprised the majority of their infantry. The musketeer was a precursor to the rifleman. Muskets were replaced by rifles in most Western armies during the mid-1850s. So... Um, as far as history goes, musketeers did have muskets, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem like they were very important to the King's Guard type musketeers that we we're reading about. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a musket is a, a longer range weapon, right? So it's my first issue. Can, we, can I move on to my second <laughs> yeah, one? Yeah, please. <laughs> the book is called The Three Musketeers. <laughs> Although, who would you define as the protagonist of this book? Uh, D'Artagnan who spends the whole fucking book trying to be a musketeer so either you could have called it the four musketeers which I believe has happened in um, in movies mm. which which makes more sense right um, but my third and final challenge to it is in the book very early in the book they are referred to as the three inseparables uh, that being Athos, Porthos, and Aramis. <laughs> yeah. And I think The Three Inseparables is an even better title than The Three Musketeers. Um, all valid points. 
things that I kind of tumbled around in my head because at some points during the book, they were referred to as the Four Musketeers as well. That did happen. Yeah, well, I mean, he does. He does finally get. Look, this is going to be filled with spoilers because the <laughs> book is two hundred and fifty fucking years old. Um, and like I said, who hasn't seen a movie? And most recently, the BBC did a serial adaptation, um, which I only watched a couple episodes of, but I might revisit at some point because I think they actually went into a second series for it. Hmm. Um, he does become a musketeer, and then it is fair that it's the four musketeers. Well, I mean, if you watch that Disney movie. Was that called the Four Musketeers? No, no, no. I'm just saying. Oh, I guess. Yeah, oh, I see what you're saying. You he gets his commission at that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so there you go. Did I spend enough time on the title? You <laughs> was there? Did did we set an amount of time? You know, it was, I have no, I have no yeah. idea. You're just avoiding just... trying to explain this fucking story, is what you're doing. Well, what happened is, I, I, man, I don't know. I may have thought more during reading this book than I have during any other book I've read. Like, thought about the plot or pondered things or, like, tried to decipher? I shared with you off the air, um, but I'll say it here. This is, um, I use the Kindle dictionary app where you Mm -hmm. look up words more in this book easily than probably in any other four or five books I've ever read total. I'm sure I looked up 70 words. Wow. Wow. in in this book and i found i mean some, some really some really interesting words i don't have notes on them and stuff so it's a little like assignations that we looked up from the from the synopsis it was like that throughout the whole book um you know what that reminds me i was looking at uh because i was reading it on the kindle app as well on my ipad and um i you know how like you can mark stuff um like highlight things and and stuff like that mm-hmm. Yeah, there was, and I don't remember how I found it, but uh, oh, like, did does your you said you read it on the Kindle, right? Yeah, yeah, yep. Did you does does yours have like the like commonly highlighted passages thing going on? So it's weird because it does. <laughs> the only one I found was like at the very last chapter, like before the epilogue or whatever. There was one that was highlighted five hundred thirty-five times. Yeah, like there's one. I just randomly found, um, but anyway, I, I can't remember what it was, but, uh, like I, I, I was looking at something where it told, it said how many different passages in the book had been highlighted and by how many people or something. And I can't find it now, but, um, uh, I'll agree. I did do a lot of like quick lookups of, of words, um, and I can't, I really wish I remember I was going to like write it down. There was a word that had no definition like it just like wasn't I couldn't find a definition for it at all like in in the app or outside of it it was so I don't know if it was like a made up word or just I don't know I seem I seem to remember a word that I couldn't get the definition I did go like yeah. outside the app to do it um I do know that a lot of this um a lot of them I don't know if you know used oh, what was the term they used where really it's like an old ass word What do you mean like where where you looked up the definition and uh-huh. I, God, I wish I could remember what it was, but the indication was that it was a word that's no longer in usage. So they were oh, giving gotcha. you a very old definition of, of a word. And, yeah. um, but the interesting thing is this has been translated numerous times. I'm pretty sure you and I read the same version. So let mm-hmm. me start there. Yeah. Um, had we have read a different version, there might have oh, been man. significantly less or significantly more words. So depending on how scholarly and how, uh, how wordy 
the person is who um right. who translated it. it it really depends on what you're you know what you're going to get as far as a reading experience goes yeah because i imagine in translation like that word that had no definition could have been like slang for the time that just did not have an english like equivalent and they just mm-hmm. left it as like a like you know, uh, kind of the same way they did with names of buildings or roads or stuff. They left it in the, in the French or like titles of people. They might have just left it as like an untranslatable word or something like that. Yeah, and the other thing too was um, when they when they were talking to the German, um, the military guys. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't even try because you could tell some of those words were were kind of cobbled from German. Yeah, and I, I don't feel that the Kindle app would have <laughs> any definition for that. Right. Um, so there were hurdles, um, since we're talking about the language. Um, did you have any trouble? Like, uh, I, I know that sometimes when there's, uh, I can't think of the book that I know we've had this in the past where like keeping characters separate was a difficult thing because the, all of the names were foreign. I think I have a problem with that in like fantasy or sci-fi stories where everything's just fucking made up. And you can't keep keep everything apart. But sometimes with translations, I have a little bit of trouble. But for some reason with this one, I had very good ideas of who all the characters were. Yeah, I didn't struggle with that at all. The plot is very, very complicated, though. And at times it was, it was hard to keep track of not the who's who, but how they relate to the plot, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm. And there were times where I was like, oh, I, I kind of was under the impression that this person wasn't an ally of this other person. But now I think they are, but I'm not really <laughs> sure. Like, I did have that happening um, a, a number of times. Um, I mean, that could be attributed to once we start talking about plot. Like, I have a thought about the um, flights of fancy <laughs> that we experienced throughout. So maybe. maybe yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We might get into that. So, I don't know. Let's let's uh, slap a little plot on our listeners for people who are completely unaware of what the Three Musketeers is about. So, we start off the book with a young D'Artagnan who is going to leave his home, make his way to Paris, um, where he is hoping to gain uh, a position in the Musketeers. Um, He has this hope because the captain of the Musketeers, uh, Monsieur de Treville. Um, is the uh, former neighbor of his, someone uh, who lived in his town, who his father served in the military with. So his father writes him a, a letter of recommendation, hoping that the the bond of their military service will will gain his son some favor, which it, it probably should. But on his way there, um, he encounters a, a situation uh, in which he is robbed of his letter. So he stumbles across a man who's meeting with a woman and him and the man exchange words and uh, D'Artagnan, uh, you know, winds up uh, getting hurt. And, and he's in this, uh, I don't know, a hotel seems to be the wrong, like an inn and his letter is stolen. So he continues on and makes his way to Paris, um, requests an audience with uh, Monsieur de Treville. And uh, he uh, explains what happened and, and, and Treville's understanding, um, but is unable to give him a position um, in the Musketeers, but will definitely try to do something for him. Upon leaving, it, it turns into this weird like comedy of errors where um, he did briefly meet the three Musketeers, Athos, Porthos and Aramis, who are established and are, are favorites of um, the captain, of the Musketeers. But when he's leaving, he manages to somehow 
uh, encounter and offend all three of them so that he is challenged to duels um, one hour apart with each of the three musketeers. Yeah. Um, which, <laughs> if we're going to dip over into that Disney movie, is probably, that's kind of like how the 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 characters are introduced in the movie. Chris O'Donnell is this cocky little kid. Anyway, like when that when that happened in the book, I totally just pictured Chris O'Donnell talking to like uh, Oliver Platt and <laughs> Charlie Sheen or fucking uh, you know <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> but that's the goddamn shame of it, right? <laughs> is that you talk about this book, which which is. Um, you know, it's 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 a legendary piece of literature. I mean, there's yeah. no other word for it, right? Um, and, but then it, you conflate it with goddamn Disney's um, watered down version, <laughs> you know, and, and you've got um, what's would you say is the Oliver Platt, right? Is yeah. that him? God damn it! You know what? He did fine in that movie, <laughs> but that movie is like like loosely based on a great literary novel. <laughs> Is the best way that I can put it. So anybody who's thinking like I'm going to read this book, I'm going to get the novelization of that movie is sorely mistaken. No, yeah, and 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 I what I feel is, um, if we're talking about the movie, they took a handful of the best plot points uh, and a general impression of the characters, and um, just kind of made their own thing. Yeah, and I, I mean, we could talk more about that throughout the course yeah. of this. The other thing they do, I think that, so I read this when I was in high school. So I have some recollection of reading it you know, 30 years ago. Um, the the thing about the Disney movie and, and, and possibly other adaptations to it, I remember seeing the first that BBC series, is that they they probably gave the Three Musketeers more personality than comes across in this book. Um, I so can like, see, yeah. Like, exaggerated like caricatures um, of their of characters the yes characters. Yeah. yes yep for sure um so after the 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 duels so they show up for the duels and um their their dueling is interrupted by the uh what, what are the what are the troops of the uh cardinal called i think they're just called the cardinal's guard cardinal's guard yeah and um so then it's that scene like in the movie where it's like oh there's seven of them and three of us and then d'artagnan's like no 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 there's four of us and they're like you don't and then the guards like this kid isn't uh doesn't matter to us we we only care about the musketeers and then there's a whole big fight and and so that was interesting to see because like it's kind of a weird thing how duels and battles happen in this book and obviously it's a sign of the the time they were in but like they're really casual about killing each other, but at the same time, like it was more about defeating someone than them actually dying, um, which which was interesting to read. And what I mean by that is, like, me and Livius are both like show like throwing down with swords. Right? He stabs me in the thigh. The fight's over. And then he's like helping me yeah. up off the ground and like helping me get back on my horse or some shit. But if he stabs me like through the heart and I die, eh, it's all part of fighting. So that was a really weird like <laughs> thing to read because it doesn't seem like it makes sense, but it's all about who bested someone 
not necessarily what the outcome of the fight is. Yeah, I, in, in historically, so I had a couple of thoughts. Um, this was written by Alexandre Dumas based on history, which we'll talk about a little later too. Uh, but it was done 200 years after the fact. Yeah. So a lot of that had to be like some stuff he read, you know, and, and the impression that he had of what the time was much like when we write stories now about the, the 1800s, a lot mm-hmm. of that's a guess at what people's actual perceptions were. Cause you could base it on the little bit of reading that you did from the time. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting because 200 years from now, people will be looking at like, um, like a Facebook archive and trying to suss out what 2019 is like. <laughs> oh, Jesus. And you know, but that, well, but writing a but book think about, about podcasters. <laughs> yeah, but think about this for a second. Think about how wrong they'll really get it. Oh, yeah. If you go through your Facebook feed and look at the, um, you know, the exaggeration and the things that people post, but now you take them very, very seriously because you're a historian. Mm-hmm. And maybe you don't read the innuendo or you don't read the, the um, you know, the, the, the comedy in it. And you go, man, these people are really fucking weird. So now I'm going to write a story. And that story maybe doesn't reflect everyday 2019 life because you're basing it not on your own personal experience being in the world, but reading somebody else's mm-hmm. uh, uh, estimation of what that time period was. Yeah. So um, there's that. And then the other thing I think was that there's a lot in this book about being a gentleman, right? I think that you don't want to you don't want to stab somebody who's already down who can't defend themselves. And I think maybe that's why dishonorable. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if I've got you knocked down and you can't walk because I I stuck you in the thigh, then it would be really shitty for me to stand over you and and stab you in the face eight times with my sword. That wouldn't be gentlemanly. Right. But if I pulled out a gun and aimed it at you, you Mm -hmm. could you could cut me up yep for sure okay for sure so after uh, as rob mentioned um the the musketeers unite with d'artagnan and, and they take um, him under their wing uh because of his bravery and they go back to uh treville who as captain of the musketeers is is forever at odds with the cardinals um the cardinals guard so he's very secretly very very happy that um, his people were able to defeat the Cardinals people. So he, he, D'Artagnan again, enhances the, the, the fate, the favor of, of Treville by, um, you know, being just a kid essentially and standing up to these guys. And he also winds up killing and or wounding one of like their top guys too. So yep. to top it all off, he has bested one of the best of the Cardinals guards. Yeah. And he then it's around that time that he gets the job, as a guardsman, which is different than a musketeer, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And so now he's yeah, he like... Yeah, a different company. I got some... It, I hope it's okay that I just keep kind of peppering thoughts into our discussion of the plot because, like, there are things that confound me about the time. So... Okay. The guardsmen, musketeers, didn't it kind of seem like they weren't getting paid to be musketeers or, or like, a guardsman? <laughs> So like they yeah, had to there's kind of never stretch. any mention. Yeah, <laughs> so they're broke a lot, and nobody's they, ever like, "I can't, I can't wait till Friday, so we can go <laughs> back and drink more wine," which is what we would say today, right? You'd yeah. be like, "Oh, hey, I get paid day after tomorrow. Let's go do something." Yeah. You know, um, no, not so much in this book. So I don't know if military service. Um, well, it, well, it wasn't mandatory, right? Because not everybody belonged to one of those groups. You know, you had people who had, you know, regular jobs. They're innkeepers or they're mm-hmm. um, uh, jewelers or, or whatever. 
So yeah, I'm not really sure because so, they weren't. Like yeah. my impression is that it 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 bestowed social status as opposed to like a paycheck. That's the best that I could estimate because these fucking guys were out hustling all the time. Like they were doing whatever they could to like scratch up some money. And as we'll eventually maybe talk about when, when war starts to brew, um, they get kind of like called to duty. Like, Hey, two weeks from now, you got to show up at this place, make sure you buy all your equipment. And it's like, what? You're the army. (laughs) Like, yeah. So it was really strange that they did like they it was you can't call it their job. It was more of a status that they and in a, in a, a service kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, well, weird. and and interestingly, bringing your own stuff, there was like a a uh, a, a crazy um, I don't even know like it was very important to them that they had really nice stuff, not good stuff. Yeah. It wasn't, I'm going to get the most durable boots. It's, I had to have like the nicest cloak. Yeah. And even like the, yeah, the saddle for my horse has to be of a certain caliber. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it, it would be interesting to, to get another take at what the musketeers yeah. were like. Maybe not a fictional one, but, but to, you know, maybe read a couple paragraphs and see if, if any of this is, is reflective <laughs> of musketeers of the time. Yeah, they were really focused on one of my favorite phrases in the book was horse furniture. Yep. Because in my mind, it's like, is that that's where the horses sit when they're. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so uh, one of the more entertaining things, and this is like, uh, I, we haven't really talked about the tone of the story much. It goes, it kind of oscillates, I'd say, from like serious to very uh, carefree and. And uh, but and this isn't necessarily the best example, but like when the musketeers aren't out musketeering, like they go play tennis one day, and uh, <laughs> you'd never see that. That's never making it into one of the movie adaptations. <laughs> like the musketeers playing tennis, but it happens, and it's fucking great because D'Artagnan is like, I'll play tennis. He's never played it before. He doesn't know anything about the game. Almost gets fucking hit in the head with a tennis ball, and he's like, I'm out, and. While the other Busketeers are um, are playing tennis, he gets challenged to a duel again by another one of the uh, the Cardinals guards, who is another one of the high profile, you know, kind of heroes of the of the Cardinals guard. And does he kill that one? Um, no, no, that he one that seriously one, yeah, he, he wounds, wounds him. But yep, yep. Because the cardinal makes a big stink about it, but the guy winds up being okay after a while, like he didn't die, and yeah. yeah. But what you were saying about it oscillating, it's very true, and and you know, I said it's kind of like a comedy of errors, right? So mm-hmm. there are many parts <laughs> in this book. Two things: there are many parts in this book where it's all done kind of like a joke. Like if you you know if you're saying you know I, I can't think of one, but um, you know Rob walks into a bar and there's a, a priest, a rabbi, and um, another clergyman from another race right or another religion another sect <laughs> whatever um it was like that a lot because d'artagnan meets each of the three musketeers individually and yep. is caused to duel with all three of them and there are plenty of times in the book where they're like d'artagnan went to athos's house yep. and athos wasn't there so he went to to aramis's house i mean there's a lot of individual scenes so it, in a way it's it's almost like a like a comedy of errors but this is probably one of the most intricate plots I've read in a book. 
So it goes from them playing tennis or this silly, you know, he bumps into one, he points out a dropped handkerchief to the other one and and duels and you go, all right, well, this is going to be kind of silly. But then you get into some real political intrigue and and it completely changes its tone and gets very somber and very serious. And towards the end of this book gets downright sad and, and, um, jarring even at parts. So, yeah. Again, I sort of spoilers, but you know what I'm talking about, right? They they find the original executioner, yeah, yeah. who had sentenced um, um, De Winter to death. Yep, like that's some heavy shit in that like 20 pages. Yeah, some real badass stuff, but also mm-hmm. very like very heavy stuff. Um, yes, I agree. And so it's 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 got kind of different gears. I feel one is the funny gear, which happens a lot in the I'd say the first half of the book. There's a lot of like lighthearted stuff that establishes the character of uh, the musketeers, and I would say that irreverent is probably a good word, right? Would you say irreverent? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they're and and they're just kind of like until there's something that needs to be taken seriously, they just are are kind of you know fun f- like frat boys. It is kind of the feeling I get from these guys, but in a way where they, they care about, you know, like you said before, being gentlemen, um, Mm -hmm. like a code of conduct and stuff like that. But they also are a little bit of troublemakers. They care deeply about one another. There's kind of like this, I don't even know, maybe it's spoken, but I was going to say an unspoken, like if one has money, they all have money. Yeah. Yeah. Like D'Artagnan comes into some money and for like three weeks he he buys dinner every night and and wine and they it's smart because they treat other people so that when they're broke they they can be invited to like dinner and dining yeah. with somebody else yeah. just just fucking genius. <laughs> that um, was one of the yeah. funny parts too because like when the like one of the moments where they're dead broke, um, it's up to the each of them to find a dinner to get them all invited to and stuff and then D'Artagnan mm-hmm. feels bad because. He doesn't get them as much, like you know, dinner time as as the others have and stuff. So yeah, they really look out for each other. Moving into the broader plot of of the book is a weird love story slash war over a woman. I, I guess is the best way I can put it. So in short, um, Queen Anne of Austria um, is uh, Queen Anne, who was originally Anne of Austria. Um, is married to Louis the Thirteenth, um, but she is in love with the Duke of Buckingham. So she is married to the French king, but has fallen in love from her one interaction, one night at a party, um, with the Duke of Buckingham, who's a duke who commands the the military, basically of uh, of England. And um, through some things that happen, the Duke of Buckingham decides essentially to declare war on France over over this woman. Um, so throughout the plot, what we're seeing is, um, Cardinal Richelieu, who's, uh, really seems to be the one who's in command of the military and not so much the King, um, his spies and, and his plots to, to, uh, make things happen. Um, and how the three musketeers and D'Artagnan, D'Artagnan specifically gets caught up in, in all of this. Um, he falls in love with a girl who he's seen once. That's the Madame Bonacieux, B-O-N-A-C-I-E-U-X, mm-hmm. um, who's married. Bonacieux, yeah. Yeah. 
who's married. And that's kind of D'Artagnan's driving force um, throughout this book is uh, she kind of comes and goes. She's kidnapped a lot. This is the most kidnapped woman <laughs> in all of literature. And uh, D'Artagnan is in a constant struggle, not just to win her affection, but just to rescue her from kidnapping. <laughs> yeah, to, not to not too much success either. Um, let's talk a little bit. Let's pause. And I want to analyze another aspect of this book is people fell in love fucking instantly back then because it happens probably four or five times uh in this At book at least and, nope. and that's being you know yeah um uh that's being conservative but like yeah so uh the first time this happens to d'artagnan is with um madame what was her first name anyway that's a good question it's in there somewhere uh he falls in love with her the kidnapped constance kid. constance thank you he falls. I'm just gonna say Constance. Um, he falls in love with Constance uh, after having just met her, and um, he fall. D'Artagnan throughout the book, I think, falls in love with two, at least two people, and he's borderline on a third one, whose name is just <laughs> Kitty, <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> it's like the least French name, but it's <laughs> it's literally Kitty, right? Mm -hmm. it is kitty bit, yep yeah so well it's more the kitty was really head over so he, he he's falling for um lady de winter yeah and kitty is her servant and kitty, kitty falls, falls head off. over yeah. oh my god yeah and and d'artagnan being kind of a dick totally uses that to get closer to to lady de winter yeah and well uh so yeah, I guess he didn't fall in love with her. He did definitely. I'm assuming he slept with her, because there was that one time like he left De Winter's like apartment at like midnight one night and stayed in Kitty's room until like 5 a.m. And you, and you don't really he know what happened. He totally he totally banged her. Now again, <laughs> I'm in the same way, so I have a th I, thoughts right throughout the book. Can I tell you? So I and I'm not how much of this is is French, how much of this is Dumas. Um, but I probably have it highlighted somewhere. There's some, some brilliance in the writing here. And, and again, I'm going to have to attribute this. So this is probably just old French. There's a part. And I wound up looking this up because it struck me as weird. Cause I was having the same thing. I was like, did he just have sex with this woman? The reference of a woman defending herself. He said something like she defended herself vigorously. <laughs> it is actually a euphemism for having sex. <laughs> so I, I'm telling you, I read a whole little, little, you know, whatever, like two paragraph, three paragraph article on this. Um, essentially, the man is attacking and the woman is defending, but not defending like, hey, get off of me. Like, like the actual act of being a woman and having sex would be the defense part of this. So is it her virtue that she's defending? Like he's attacking her? Virtue? No. No, right. it's just it's like it's a game that, you know, right. so point. So like the, the act of sex would be attack and defense. It sounds very aggressive. It's it, yeah, but it's it's kind of interesting. Oh, here we go. Time passes quickly when it is passed in attacks and defenses. Oh. That is not like I'm coming on to you and you're like, oh, no, no. That's literally like we're getting down. So he. he they attacked and defended for sure they did and then but the nice thing about it is like even though he was using her 
Like, he at least treated her nicely when she was in trouble. Like, he took care of her. So he's not he like sure a monster. Yeah. So. No, no. He's... I, I don't think... You know, the kind of using her to get closer to DeWinter is kind of a shitty thing. Um, and here's here's a quote. Uh, just, there is some really great... Um, <laughs> some of this writing, man. And again, I don't know to credit Dumas or the translator, so I'm going to credit Dumas, right? Right. Uh, he is explaining... D'Artagnan is explaining to Athos that... Um, He's in, so he's trying to get to Lady De Winter through Kitty because he's trying to find Constance. So Athos says, "Yes, I understand now. To find one woman, you court another. It is the longest road, but certainly the most amusing." <laughs> that was a great line. <laughs> there are so many good lines and like observations about people um, as well in this book. It's it's yeah, it's it's staggering how many times I was really impressed with either wordplay or observations into like people's psyche. Yeah. I'd say that the dialogue and interplay between characters is fantastic throughout, uh, especially between the Musketeers characters. It gets a little bit different when you in- incorporate, you know, the, I guess you could say bad guys and stuff like that. But um, the way that they interact with each other, you could tell that like, <sighs> there was a real like comfort in the way that it was written. Like it was a lot more easy, and 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 uh, it felt realer, I think, maybe than other parts of the book. So I wonder what that's attributed to. But yeah, those characters' interactions were uh, pretty much consistently fantastic. Have we done enough on plot? Um, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, uh, the real thing. It's a real good versus evil kind of story, I'd say. And um, obviously the Musketeers at their side representing the good and uh, Richelieu and all of all of his machinations being the bad. And while you could say that because there's a there's an element of like uh, war between France and and England, that that's the main plot. But really, the main plot is um, like I'd say the three Musketeers saving the day, the four the four musketeers like saving the day saving the damsel like that kind of thing it's more of it reads more of a personal story for those four than an overall like they're embroiled in a greater plot it's kind of how i feel about it uh one of the things that i found really interesting is that i think that the true the true antagonist in this is is the countess de winter yeah totally which is interesting because i i don't i don't know a lot about you know, um, classic literature. But I wonder how many times before that was the where the protagonist four men, and the villain is one woman. Right. You would think that of the times even when he wrote this in the 1840s, right? That it would be um, that Richelieu would truly be the villain, and I think a lot of people would say that in generalizing the story, synopsizing the story. Yeah, sure. But she's really the the bad actor in all of this. Like Richelieu's doing his thing, and he's he's a politician. Right. He's a cardinal, but essentially he's a politician and he's kind of like pushing things in his favor and kind of manipulating things behind the scenes. But if you want to talk about somebody that's evil and wicked, it's this woman. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of interesting for a book that's 260 years old. And we're not worried about spoiling stuff, right? No, not at all. So uh, I guess my main observation on Richelieu is that um, 
he is kind of built up in, in the beginning part of the book. I'd say the first like half of it um, as being a formidable person, very powerful. Um, and even in like the interactions you see between him and other characters besides the protagonists, like he seems like he's a very cutthroat, ruthless, powerful person. But in his interactions with other people, he seems a little insignificant. And I wonder if you felt the same way, but like, especially when he was interacting with, you know, our musketeers, it felt like he was less, um, like grandiose than, mm-hmm. than in the rest of the book. Yeah. I, that's what, what I was kind of going with. He's like a politician. Yeah. He makes decisions based on whatever's most prudent for, um, so again, we're not spoiling anything right at the end. He could totally have D'Artagnan arrested and, yeah. and probably executed. Totally and, and he chooses not to because D'Artagnan could be helpful to him down the road. Yeah. Like he makes his decisions based on what's in his best interest versus just being the the the, the big baddie, right? right? Like no matter what happens, he's going to do the thing you hate most. As a matter of fact, there are multiple types in this book where he does exactly what works out best for the for the protagonist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah which makes him a terrible antagonist. But the thing about uh, Lady De Winter the whole time is just how evil, like straight evil, she is. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, like <laughs> throughout the book, there's times where it's like people are warned about how she is, and then they're like, uh, "All right, all right, I got it." And then she does the thing that they were warned about, you know. And so uh, it's just like it's so cool to see how. Her character, um, well, so Richelieu is is like a manipulator, a master manipulator of people, but he has got nothing on what she can do to somebody, um, because she just like she's very shrewd in, in analyzing people and figuring out their weaknesses and what she could use against them and stuff, and and it's just it's uh it's cool to see her character, um, like just straight up evil as hell. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about um, a little bit more about the writing and I have some quotes. So there's a, there's an interesting thing um, that's done in this book. This is all written up omnipotent narrator um, through the whole book, but that narrator um, often breaks what we would call the, the, the fourth wall, right? Is that the fourth yeah. wall on TV? Yeah. Why is it the fourth wall? Because if the camera is occupying one side of the view so you're mm-hmm. looking at you can see the two side walls in the back wall oh, but the, i see what you're saying okay yeah yeah i guess that makes, yeah i guess that makes sense i was thinking top and bottom i was like no that would be like the sixth wall <laughs> i don't know any anyway, rate um you're thinking with so too many here's dimensions. here's one yeah yeah um at one point uh d'artagnan promises to help somebody it's it's the husband of the girl that he falls in love with um but he is that the husband is arrested and Dumas warns us and he says, let our readers reassure themselves if D'Artagnan forgets his host or appears to forget him under the pretense of not knowing where he has been carried. We will not forget him and we know where he is. But for the moment, let us do as did the amorous Gascon. We will see after the worthy Mercer later. It's like the fourth wall is broken to address us and be like, hey, we know we know you're wondering what. Don't worry, we'll get to that. And he does it several times throughout the book, which is, um, I don't know, again, is this a thing of the time that happened? It's not something we see very often in, in current fiction. 
Um, yeah, and it's it's uh, it kind of reminds me of like um, if there was a narrator in like a cartoon fairy tale or something. You know what I'm yes. saying? Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Kind of yep. similar. And in the preface, I believe the the it's written in that language where the the narrator is speaking directly to the reader. So it's established that way in the beginning, but as a preface, as opposed to like the beginning of the story. So mm-hmm. you get it right away, but like you didn't necessarily expect it to carry through into the actual like narrative the way it did. But I liked it. I think it was helpful. Yeah, I couldn't help but smile every time it happened because it wasn't just delivered as a as a information to us. It, it was always done in kind of that tongue in cheek fashion. Like, don't worry, uh, yeah, you haven't forgotten. Almost yeah. to like instruct you how you're supposed to feel or add context to what was going on so that you could better understand. It was always a helpful um, uh, breaking of the fourth wall. Yeah. Um, some of this is, uh, so again, you know, we say it again, 250 years ago, someone wrote, he gave a sigh for that unaccountable destiny, which leads men to destroy each other for the interests of people who are strangers to them and who often do not even know that they exist. And, um, you know, that still goes on today. Yeah. And I don't know how astute an observation it was 260 years ago, but it was really striking to read it today and think that, hey, this has been going on probably forever. Like a reminder that, well, yeah. that the people in the military aren't serving their own purposes. They're serving the desires of others, and those others only know them as soldiers in a, yeah. you know, in a, in a war, but don't individually know who's risking their lives to um or whatever i love this one everyone knows that drunkards and lovers have a protecting deity <laughs> i think good. that was about i yep. think that was about d'artagnan kind of rushing mm-hmm. off with reckless abandon um he had a lot of observations to make about women um and <laughs> god damn it i felt like so many of them were so spot on and i'm not going to go through a lot of them um just for the sake of not sounding um terribly sexist but uh, I think this guy had his finger on the pulse, man. Um, I do, I do love this one. Um, there's a there's a great ploy that Porthos pulls. So Porthos needs to get money so he can buy his his um, armament for for the upcoming battle that that he has to participate in. So he had been um, involved with a woman who was married, who was funneling him money. But when he needed money. She basically said, yeah, I don't see you very often, whatever. She just didn't respond to his letters. So he's trying to figure out how to loop her back in to get this money. So he goes to church where he knows that she'll be. And he makes sure that she sees him, um, you know, engage long distance um, with a woman who is pretty and wealthy. Although the woman has no idea who he is. He just kind of makes it seem like they're sending signals to one another. So she approaches him afterwards because now she has become jealous, although she did want to help him in his time of need and was pretty much done with him. The second that she saw that he was he might be involved with another woman, she kind of wants to regain her place in Porthos's life. And this so the, the whole thing is, is fairly brilliant. And it's complete throwaway. There nothing would be missing from this book if you didn't have this <laughs> this five page exchange. But there is this Porthos had seen. Oh, so I'm sorry. She says, you know, the woman, the one that got into the fancy carriage, 
as, as he's saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Who was I flirting with or whatever? And she points out that there was a carriage that she got into and says, Porthos had seen neither the footman nor the carriage, but with the eye of a jealous woman, Mademoiselle Coquenard had seen everything. And I was really struck by how interesting that is, because I, I think that that's, I, but you know what I mean? Like, it, and there's a lot of that, a lot of that in this book. And it always felt very genuine and very spot on. So that whole, all right. So that, that's one of the more entertaining parts of the book where uh, they all have to find a way to uh, like pay for their armaments and stuff. And the whole interplay with, uh, with that woman, the jealous woman, because uh, the result of, of that interaction was that she invited him to uh, dinner and the, basically they pl- they plotted to make it seem as if he was her cousin so that he could come to dinner so that she could um, help him get money for his armaments and stuff. But she's got like this 75-year-old husband, so that's why she he had to pretend to be her cousin. And so he's like, all right, well, I, I you know, in his mind, you know, he's thinking, well, if this is what I have to go through to get the money, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll suffer through it or whatever. And it's just like so much worse than he anticipated it being (laughs) like he gets, he goes there and the 75 year old husband is just like this real curmudgeon and like he, you know, they stay for dinner and the dinner is just real awful and, and everything just is just like infinitely more tedious and, and awful than he expected it to be. But that's what he has to suffer through because he needs to get money, but then she wants to like itemize, like instead of just giving him money, she wants to like buy like a horse on the cheap and stuff like that. And it's just so <laughs> he winds like, up with D'Artagnan's first horse, the one that everyone <laughs> assumed was sick because of its color. Yeah. It's just fucking brilliant. It is such excellent comedy because it's like just watching this man like suffer through this like just just terrible ordeal. Because he doesn't want to find a more common way of like getting money to buy his armaments and stuff. Oh man, it's so good. That was so good. And that's that's like I said. That's kind of the thing. As deep as this book is, and as convoluted in plot and 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 complex and whatever, there are those moments that are like that that you just can't look. Even if you're like, oh god, no more boring shit about you know, the Duke and, and, and his plan and to do whatever, but you get to a moment like that and it wipes away all of the other stuff that you didn't care about. Yeah. The other example that I can think of where it's, uh, it's entertaining like that kind of in the middle of, of nowhere is it's after it's after the main battle in La Rochelle and, um, they make, I don't remember exactly how this goes. There's this like, um, this, what is it that they have to, they, they go to to have lunch in because they want to talk in secret. Yeah, they, they like some yeah, sort they of like make, little building or something. Yeah, they make a bet and they they go. I think it's the fort. I think they go to like the front of into yeah. the fort that that was being heavily contested, but right now nobody's fighting there. Yeah, so like basically, uh, they need to talk in secret, but like everywhere they go, um, they can't find uh, like a place where they know that no one will hear them, and so uh, one of them makes a bet with some of their you know, the other French, whatever, not, they weren't musketeers. They were other French army people or whatever, I believe, um, that they can, that they'll go to this little fort for an hour. And it's like this, it's, it's an area of like an active, um, conflict is going on in, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of like this neutral area. 
And um, so they, they make a bet that like they bet dinner or something like nothing spectacular. But the whole idea is um, it was pretense for them to go into this place because no one else is there and they can kind of plot what their next move is and share information that they learn together. So it was clever in the fact that like they manipulated people in order to like have a valid reason to go to this place to not be suspected of sharing secrets with each other. But then when they're there, it's total comedy because they're there and they're having lunch and talking and everything. But then like, you know, enemies approach and then they just very casually like, you know, uh, you know, fight, fight them in a way where it seems like it's not really that big of a deal to them. They're very just super casual about it. And it's very entertaining the way it all goes down. For sure. Which brings me to another thing we did not discuss at all. The lackeys. Fucking lackeys, dude. <laughs> Holy shit, dude. I don't know if they've been incorporated into any of the film adaptations, but they're a pretty big part of this. So each one of them yeah. has a servant, like an indentured servant. They're referred to as lackeys. Um, and they, they each have their own um, personality, like their own distinct personality. Mm -hmm. So the one that um, Athos has, right, is not allowed to speak like right. ever. They they like Athos just gestures like they have a, you know, kind of a, a complicated sign language that only the two of them understand because Athos doesn't want to hear him talk. Yep. <laughs> and there's just great moments between the two of them. Um, D'Artagnan has one who is uh, far braver than he appears at first. Like they all have their own yeah. distinct personalities and, and they're critical to the story because there are a lot of times where it's not that it's four of them. There are eight of them. The lackeys yep. will take up muskets and, and, and go ahead to clear the path or, or keep an eye on them from behind to dissuade anybody who approaches them. So mm -hmm. I know one of the lackeys was uh, was very key to that that uh, that little fight scene that you were just talking about when they're in that, yep. that fort. Oh, yeah, because he's reloading the weapons and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I love the whole lackey thing because, like, uh, it, it's just and I think, again, there's like a, uh, a social status thing going on there, like a, like a caste system or whatever you want to call it that like we as Americans in the 21st century don't understand as well, I guess, unless you studied it, which I did not um, speak for yourself. I understand it just fine. I just don't know where to get one. Oh, did you try lackeys.com? <laughs> lackeys.com. Here we go. <laughs> lackeys.com. <laughs> lackeys.com uh waiting for lackeys.com <laughs> waiting some more for lackeys.com it is a uh, hey a web page is parked for free courtesy of godaddy.com oh someone owns it they're just not doing anything with it yet yeah i wish they'd start selling goddamn lackeys already yeah. um oh shit i lost my thought because that was so funny uh i think that if you're of a of a, of a certain status like you just hire lackeys and like, so I would probably end up being a lackey. Like if, if I, like, <laughs> let's be honest, I'm not walking around. I'm not a gentleman, I guess. Well, you called me a gentleman at the beginning. So, uh, yeah, that was your job. Like lackey was a job, but it seemed like, again, pay is a really weird thing back then. You didn't just like agree on every week. I'm going to get like X number or like, I'm going to get paid per hour. I work It was like, they, thrived or suffered like kind of at the level that their that their bosses did 
Like sometimes the lackeys sure. just didn't eat. It seemed like. Yeah, Aramis, who um, had studied um, religion, was going to be a priest. Um, left um, at whatever priest school or whatever he was in, and became a musketeer. But always wants to go back. And his lackey is like encouraging him yeah. to because <laughs> he doesn't really want to be lackey of a musketeer that could be shot or killed. He would be happy to enter into the church. Yeah, as some as some type of uh, you know whatever church figure, a monk or or something, um, and remain in service to to Aramis. He just wants to priest, do it in a much safer lackey. way. Yeah, before we get to our wrap ups, I, I found one other. I have probably forty things highlighted in this book, <laughs> um, but just an example of just brilliance, right? As he said, he was ready to go to the end of the world to seek her, but the world being round has many ends, so that he did not know which way to turn. Yeah, I remember that. I thought of you. Fucking beautiful, man. Yeah. Even back then, they knew the Earth was not flat. Well, he says it's round. Circle's round. It could be flat. <laughs> Just be a circle, right? All right, you got me there. Quick right. thinker. Quick thinker. All right. Uh, I realize now we've been talking about this for a long time. I think it might be time to wrap it up. You want to kick it off? I would love to. Um, yeah, I um, I read this when I was in high school, and I remember having a fairly fond opinion of it. I think when I was in my 20s, I read The Count of Monte Cristo, which is the only other thing I read from Alexandria Dumas, and I absolutely loved it. And why I didn't go back and read more of his stuff um, when I had the freedom to read whatever I'd like is beyond me. And um, it was a sobering reminder reading this that on my long-term list is to read more of Dumas's stuff. Uh, the book is challenging. The book is long. Um, it took me probably 70 or 80 pages just to get into the of the writing where I was able to kind of speed up my reading because um, I was stumbling uh, a fair amount. Um, that being said, there are so many goddamn gems in this. It's not a traditional story. Um, I think in the way that, that we review stories where there's, you know, like like a like a clearly defined three act structure or, or anything like that. It meanders. And as Rob said, oscillates is, is a is a great way to put it um, between um, comedic and serious. And then it gets political and then it's like deeply historical. But then it goes back to being funny and then it goes back to being political. It, it's it's a little all over the place. But for me, it really, really worked in this book. Um, the writing is absolutely fucking phenomenal just because I'm staring down at my Kindle here. People in general, he said, only ask advice not to follow it, or if they do follow it, it is for the sake of having someone to blame for having given it. I mean, there are some gems in this from 260 years ago that that hold true today and that really spoke to me um, throughout the course of the book. Um, I would probably read Dumas' book if there was no action in it and if it was just characters and like his insight into people. Being said, I really enjoyed the adventure stuff in there. Swashbuckling uh, as a little kid. Um, I wanted to be a swashbuckler when I grew up. Um, I'm not sure that I'm not going to do it yet, but uh, this book was just terrific all around. Um, and I'm going to give it no less than five stars. Um, you keep saying it was published 250 years ago, but I'm pretty sure 1844 was like 175 years ago. Hey, um, yeah, that's 175 years ago. Yeah, you're right. You are correct. Uh, I can cut that out or I can leave that in. <laughs> no, no, no. You are absolutely correct. I don't know why I was thinking it was. I was actually thinking 170 years ago, but that's only 170 <laughs> years ago. 
All right. But it did take place. It did take place (laughs) almost 400 years ago, right? I'm not even going to. Yeah. Almost 16. Yeah. yeah, Almost 400, like 380. Yep. You were splitting the difference or something. I don't know. It's a great goddamn Uh, book. It's all that matters. Not my math skills. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, You needed a math lackey on that one. I totally need a lackey. Can we get me? What do we have to do on Patreon for me to have a lackey? Oh, is going to be a lackey level now? Well, we I had Ryan. The, we had Ryan, the marketing intern, but he was not the best lackey. I've got to be honest with you. Ryan didn't do much for me. He didn't really. He didn't lackey yeah. up too much. No, no. Should we hold lackey auditions? If you're, if you're in the internet area and are looking to be a lackey for a podcast. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap like this up. My, like Jerry Springer. Yeah, you should probably do that. <laughs> Jerry Springer. Oh, all right. You can get Jerry Springer as a lackey. <sighs> um, I I've never read this before, and um, or anything by Dumas, as a matter of fact. And so, uh, I'm I'm happy to go back to these classics. And there's there's a reason, obviously, that books like this endure. As Livia said, the writing is awesome it's amazing uh and the story is is a little meandering but i think that could be attributed to the fact that um like in the bio it says many of his historical novels were originally published as serials and i can absolutely see this as a serial there's 67 chapters and uh it is fucking very difficult to 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 read quickly (laughs) as i could attest because i started reading this we're recording on a Tuesday. I started reading this on Sunday. Uh, and so basically every like free moment between when I started reading and about two hours before we started recording uh, was me reading this book. Um, but it being published as a serial could absolutely um, explain why some chapters are very humorous, but then it would take a turn to be more serious, more political, all that kind of stuff. That being said... I wouldn't change it. I think the book is great, and I think it tells a great story. And it really illustrates, having read it now, how um, underserved any any kind of modern depiction of the story uh, I've ever seen, which boils down to probably like the Disney movie and a couple other like Hollywood offer- offerings on the subject, uh, really don't do justice. Like it's it really cherry picks like some of the more clever parts and then just kind of makes up stuff in between. So um, i absolutely happy that I read this and um, confident that I would enjoy other Dumas stuff as well. Whether we'll have the opportunity to is an entirely different subject because hell, I don't know. Books keep dropping all the time. I got a wall and building in my apartment. So who knows? Who knows what will happen? But uh, yeah, great book. And I'm with Livia's five stars. Um, yeah, I don't foresee there being another Dumas book for the podcast, <laughs> just for your sake. Uh, yeah, my break. I started pace. reading the book. Yeah, I started reading the book over two weeks ago and finished it. Um, I, I knew I had until today, so I mean, I did drag ass a little bit at the end. Um, I finished it yesterday. Um, yeah, I. Uh, you know, I, I've, I don't know how to say this. In general. In general, kind of opposed to reading classics. I'm like, uh, it's dated. Uh, it's whatever. But the times that I've done it, even even more recently, mm-hmm. I, I've been very pleased. Um, and that does 
speak to the fact that that's why they're a classic. We've reviewed a lot of books on this podcast that I've really liked a lot. But I guarantee you, in 200 years, nobody's fucking reading them. In 170 <laughs> years, no one's reading them. Whatever. You know what I mean? In 50 years, no one's yeah. reading them. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, you know, uh, I, I, I think on a, in a personal goal, on a personal level, um, I am planning to add a little more um, classics to my um, to my off podcast reading. All right, and just because you said we've read a lot of books, that just made me remember that um, we're coming up on a milestone in in the podcast history. Um, I know that we're over 400 episodes, um, but not all of those episodes are, are book reviews. Um, and in recent years, it's been a little less. But anyway, what I'm getting to is we have uh, with this book. This is, I think, our 244th review. Um, Holy shit! So we're we're a handful of books away from 250 book reviews. We're going to have to pick a really (laughs) interesting one for 250. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So, uh, (laughs) I was like the 250th episode, the 250th book review should be a special episode where we talk about all the books we've reviewed, but then that would, there there would never be a 250th book like on that episode. Right. Yeah. That wouldn't make any sense at all. Yeah. No, it wouldn't Um, make any sense. Although we all, another thing that came up, someone way smarter than me said, uh, and it's, it's, I kind of, hate that i didn't think of this myself uh this is episode 431 and uh someone who listens to the he's probably listening to this i have to give him credit his name's corky um told me you have to do you know what book you have to review for episode 451 yeah yeah i i mean i'm not going to disagree with corky and my dumb ass was like i was like what book (laughs) i didn't even it didn't even occur to me and then finally i was like oh my god something wicked (laughs) something wicked this way comes (laughs) So uh, thanks, Corky, for that awesome idea. Um, I, I think we we should probably consider doing that. Yeah, I, I'm totally I'm totally on board with that. Um, yeah. I, I read it again many years ago. I'm happy to read it again. Yeah. Hey, I was feeling, I guess, nostalgic, which isn't true because I had these tickets for a while. But probably right around the time we were talking about doing the Three Musketeers. So in uh, this this past week for me has been a, a let's revisit the classics week. So I went to the Fathom movie event for The Wizard of Oz. Are you familiar with The Wizard of Oz? Yes, I am. Yes. Okay. Well, I asked that because I mentioned it to a couple of my coworkers who are both under the age of twenty, and uh, neither one of them had seen it, which oh also leads me to understand what exactly is wrong with the world now. Like I've got it all figured out. We we keep talking about the different you know the different uh, social aspects that are causing us to to have a divided nation. It's because fucking everybody under like twenty five has not seen The Wizard of Oz. That would solve at least three quarters of our problems. So it's like the oldest old man thing you've ever said. Yeah, yeah, I know. The Wizard of Oz came out hundred eighty years ago. Wait, did your math lackey tell you this? <laughs> you might wait. Yeah, 80 years ago. Yeah, 80 years ago. Um, yeah, it was the 80th anniversary. So there was a Fathom event, which was not a huge deal. I mean, it's not. there was nothing special about it. There were no like unreleased footage or anything. There was like an intro and a little outro by a guy from uh, um, Turner Movie Classics, mm-hmm. I think is who the guy was from. But I got to see The Wizard of Oz in the theater, which is something I didn't have the opportunity um, because 80 years ago, I was way too young to go to the movies. <laughs> but, you know, a couple of things oh, struck Lord. me and in, 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 in stark parallel to, to, to reading Dumas is um, 
I had this sense when I was in the theater because everybody from the cast of The Wizard of Oz is dead now. The last Munchkin died at the age of like 98 last year, 98 or 99. Yeah. So there's nobody who is involved with that movie in any way, shape or form that is still alive. And I I get that him, you know, having died in 2018, um, understood how important this movie was to, um, to my generation, to other generations, I'm sure. But it's like the homage that you pay. You know, I've seen The Wizard of Oz. It's one of my favorite movies. It's in my top five movies of all time. So I've seen it dozens of times. Okay, going to see it in the theater was an interesting um, experience, I guess, because I wasn't looking at my phone. I wasn't distracted by the Internet. I didn't get up to, to get a soda or a sandwich. Like I just sat and watched the movie. And I think that sometimes it's important to revisit the stuff that, that you know, like this Dumas book, right? When Dumas wrote this and serialized it, I don't think he was thinking that 170 years from now, um, two guys are going to read it and talk about it to a, to an audience of people for an hour and a half. And it's just, I don't know. It, it was just kind of interesting. And I felt like, I felt like we're doing the right thing by Dumas, much like I felt like going to see the Wizard of Oz in a movie theater. I was doing the right thing by the producers and directors and actors that were in that movie. That's a tricky thing. And we've talked in the past about how um, uh, everything's inspired by the thing that came before it. And I can't, I mean, I'm not making a direct connection between the Wizard of Oz and, or any, and, and anything else, but like generationally we're less likely to go back to dig deeper into those like classics and stuff. And I'm, I'm as much guilty about, uh, you know, as anybody else with that, there's so many things I haven't seen or read just because it's old, you know? Um, Oh, for sure. But wizard of Oz is one of those that, uh, I did. It was a favorite of my mom. And so we would watch it when I was a kid and I appreciate it as a kid, and then as an adult, uh, you know, I'm much more likely to watch it for that reason. But as time, you know, as as more distance grows between that movie and you know when it was released and now, it's you're going to see diminishing returns on that, buddy. Like, oh god, I know it's going to be That's more terrible. spoken of. I've never watched Casablanca, you know, mm-hmm. but I hear people talk about how wonderful it was. But it's probably never going to happen. So, <laughs> no, because yeah. that would interrupt like your twenty eighth viewing of Scott Pilgrim. Like, yeah, you can't. Yeah. Come yeah. on, I got no time <laughs> and, for this and, shit. And and Rob, Rob, twenty five years from now, you're gonna be talking to some kid. You're gonna be like Scott Pilgrim. He's gonna be like who? You'll be like the movie Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. He's gonna yeah. be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. And it's gonna hurt, just like it hurt me to have uh, someone tell me they've never seen The Wizard of Oz. Ten years from now, I'm gonna be like, what do you mean you haven't seen Back to the Future? Oh wait. <laughs> It's funny because um, <laughs> when I was 18 or so, I worked with a guy who was 27, I think, at the time. 27, 28. He was Romanian. He, I mean, by saying that, he was born and raised in Romania, came here as a teenager. Um, so I, I think he came to the U.S. when he was 15, 16, maybe. And we were talking one day, and I had said, because I'm not kidding, this has been one of my favorite movies <laughs> since I was a little kid. And yeah. I said, I, I, you know, whatever, you make the reference, right? The Yellow Brick Road or something you say in conversation. And I, I saw that there was no no understanding on his face. So I said, come on, man, you've seen The Wizard of Oz, right? And he looked at me and, and he said, no, no, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what that is. So I looked, I said, dude, how is it possible you've never seen The Wizard of Oz? And he looked me dead in the eye and he said, I like pornos. 
That was his response to that. <laughs> Why mean, he had never seen The Wizard of Oz was his attraction to pornography. I, I, I got to give it to him. Like, you really can't art. You can't fight back on that one. He was one of the funniest people I'd ever worked with, too. That's so I, I gotta give him credit. I don't know how much of that was humor. That's the thing with him. You yeah. never knew if he was being serious <laughs> or not. He'd say these things are outlandish, and, and you, you, yeah. So, so um, uh, the Wizard of Oz thing makes me think of um, the Gregory Maguire books. Did you read any of those, Wicked or anything? I I, I read Wicked. I, I only read the first one. Yeah. What was your take on Wicked? I really liked Wicked. Um, I, I I like the. So obviously not canon, right? So before I get called out for <laughs> respecting something that's not canon, um, I always think it's interesting to get that that um, the the look from the other side. Yeah. Um, so I really like that. Um, El Fabo was a great character, mm-hmm. but but I too, I mean, I treat it differently. I don't treat it as part of the Wizard of Oz story. More, more um, as a tribute. Kind yeah, of. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was that book was right. really funny in parts and really dark, um, and and if you could put aside what your feelings were about the wizard of Oz and being tied to, cause let's face it, we're tied to the movie, right? No one's tied to the book. The book wasn't very good. I read it probably 10 years ago. It mm-hmm. wasn't great. Yeah. Uh, but I thought that was, uh, that was really good. I think one of the reasons I didn't move forward from that to read the other books was my affection was to those characters and the wizard of Oz. And my understanding is the other ones, um, you know, stray away from the, 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 the story that we know. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it, yeah. It greatly um, embellishes on, I would say. Like, there's generations of, of characters and stuff like that. So, yeah. right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, I did read uh, several. I don't remember. I don't think I read all of them, but I read Wicked. And then there was, I think, Son of a Witch, I think was one of them. Yep. And then there was, like, at least one or two others. I read, I read two or three of them. And I thought that the writing was great, and I thought it was, like you said, a very interesting kind of what if on on a on a, a venerated kind of storyline. So I thought it was pretty cool. I, I I didn't know. I honestly didn't know which direction you were going to go on that. So yeah, yep. yeah. that guy is uh, up until four years ago is still writing books. McGuire. Actually, actually, I take that back. Up until last year, twenty seventeen is his last book. Dude, yeah, he, he went on to do all kinds of other stuff. So, so in answer to your question, there were four Wicked books. But then he did Confessions of an Ugly Stepsister, which was a Cinderella take. Mirror, Mirror, which was a Snow White take. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, After Alice, which I'm going to have to assume was an Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So he, he kind of made his chops doing, um, doing that kind of thing. And then I have to imagine that the the vastly like uh successful theater theatrical um wicked like the play that had to just make tons of money it did and you know i didn't i didn't go see that because here's, here's what's fucked up right <laughs> i fucking love the wizard of oz it's a goddamn musical i love every one of those songs i was reminded just how brilliant those songs were just the other night just sunday night um yeah. and i was like Sounds like there's a lot of fucking singing in Wicked. And I was just very, you know, did the hand <laughs> flip, like, just very dismissive. Of, I'm totally not interested in, in any of that. Yeah, there was. It was good, though. Uh, I liked it. Yeah, that, uh, I mean, there have been a lot of spinoffs. I actually read um, a couple of short novellas just a couple of uh, years ago, which was uh, about another character that goes to Oz. I, I can't remember what they're called, but they were very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, Todd McFarland. Do you know who Todd McFarland is? The comic book uh, writer, artist? Yes, yeah. He has a line of uh, action figures, uh, yeah, a pretty yeah. wide line. Yeah, McFarland Toys. They did, if you ever look up it, they're, they're called um, Twisted Oz or something like that. You should look up the, the action figures that he did. Like, Dorothy's completely in bondage by, like, a munchkin. <laughs> And like the lion is this ferocious. I, look them up, man. They're they're. Oh, man. If you look up McFarlane and Oz, I'm sure it's the first thing they came out many years ago. I'm looking um, forward to that being my um, Christmas gift exchange gift from you. This. Uh, oh my god. I'll be honest with you. Probably picking one of those up, I'm sure, is ridiculously expensive. Oh. At this point, I got you. Yeah, I mean, there there were collectibles that were out maybe 15 years ago. So at this point, I would have to imagine that you're paying hundreds of bucks for one of them. Um, so they <laughs> got him yeah, for that Romanian friend of yours because he likes porn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No kidding. I like porno. <laughs> um, his name is Mario. I doubt he's listening. He's he's back to living in Romania. Last I heard. So oh, there you go. But. Uh, yeah, I mean, there have been different takes, and, and, you know, it's interesting to see when someone does. One of the other ones that, um, and I can't remember his name, I can, Fred Saberhagen, um, one of my favorite books of my youth was, I've always been a big fan of Dracula, the, the Bram Stoker Dracula, and, and you know, whatever, incarnations. He um, did a book called The Dracula Tapes, which mm-hmm. was um, uh, the, the story of Dracula told by Dracula, and it was essentially wicked in that like oh, gotcha. he's not that bad of a guy like when like you hear his side of the story dude. it's it's yeah it's very different than mm-hmm. than what than what you know brown stoker told you about this whole thing so that's great those alternate takes are always kind of interesting if done well they're they're interesting um before we wrap things up there is one thing i want to mention because uh it just recently happened and that is the trailer for donnybrook um was released within the last few days of when we're recording this and it looks fucking great. Like we've had this thing in the past. Like um, we've known authors who have had you know adaptations of their books where um, it didn't like necessarily hit. I think the way that I would have liked it to. And mm-hmm. so like there's that hesitation. So like uh, I feel that Craig Clevenger's Dermaphoria is underserved in a lot of ways by the the movie that was made of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I'll just use that as an example. Um, but like there's this real hesitation I have every time someone's thing gets made into a movie because like, what if they just don't do it right? And I'm not saying that the Desiree movie was not, was just totally not good. Um, I liked a lot of stuff about it, but um, yeah, you know, I could have, they, they could have done so much more with it. This Donnybrook trailer, dude, I, I was very nervous about how this would turn out because it's just not it doesn't seem like an easy book to, to put on film. But man, that trailer was great. I uh you said it dropped recently. For some of us it dropped like four hours ago when I remembered to watch it. <laughs> it was like I was at work when I yeah. saw the the stuff about it and then I got busy you know what I mean? So today I saw somebody, I think it might have been Frank Bill posted something about it, so I watched it and I was uh again, I, I really like the book, really like Frank Bill. I was excited about there being a movie, but my level of excitement has been dampened by being, um, you know, like you said, not necessarily, you know, sometimes, I mean, I'll say disappointed, right? Because when you're super excited about something and it yep. doesn't deliver 100%, right? No matter if it's 90%, you're still a little disappointed. But I watched that trailer and I am much more excited than I was pre-trailer. Yeah, it looks like they did yeah. a, it looks like they did a good job. Um, mm-hmm. At the very least, they did a great job of <laughs> making a trailer. Um, so <laughs> trailer awards, <laughs> uh, 
So hey, let's not forget yeah. Bird Box, though the most recent adaptation that we're intimately familiar with yeah. was really fucking good. So yeah, so I'm hoping that like this is an upswing, and and you know when eventually uh, trailer drops for Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay, you know it follows in that path because Donnybrook looks fucking great. <laughs> I agree, and <laughs> I wasn't playing <laughs> talking about this at all, but I mentioned Bird Box. Have you seen? that somebody released the artwork for what the monsters were going to look like when they were considering putting the the actual monsters in Bird Box. Yeah, we need to take a minute. Can you go ahead and pull up um, Bird Box Monster or something? Yeah, there were were a lot of articles about it. Wait, does it look like a dude that is having trouble on the toilet? It looks like a baby that was punched in the face. I think I got, yeah. That's... Um, what, I mean, I, I, I'm glad that (laughs) they never use that. But see, this is the problem with movies, right? Like you take a book where the, the, the key element of the book is that we, we never, nobody can see the monster. So we can't see the monster. Right. And you take that, make it an integral part of the story and you give it to fucking Hollywood and Hollywood's like, nope, we need a monster. And we think that monster should look like a constipated baby. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that monster does look like a constipated baby um, yeah Sandra yeah. said it was a green man with a horrific baby face so they're green on top of that because the ones I saw were just a black and white drawing yeah yep. Um, but yeah green man with a baby face that's uh, fucking tragic like uh, I hate Hollywood so much man well for somebody who spends all their time watching stuff they make yeah Oh, but I hate most of it. That's why it's I watch a love-hate this... relationship. <laughs> That's why I watch the same stuff over and over again. Is because I hate most of it. Um, yeah. And before we move on, if there's ever another season of The View, it's going to be the CW, The Lost Boys. Is that a series? They've ordered a pilot, so we'll see. But <laughs> it's the lost boys and it's on fucking cw if you want to know what one night of the week we can't record just figure out what night that's on (laughs) uh all right well i watched that uh i'll just this will be the final i watched something recently thing um a i want you to know i was so dedicated to getting done with this reading of this book that like two or three days ago eight new episodes of unbreakable kimmy schmidt were released and i have not seen them yet so, so I guess we know what you're doing um, right after this podcast. Yeah, I'm watching Kimmy Schmidt. Um, but I did watch uh, recently when it came out or near when it came out that uh, four part Ted Bundy uh, documentary series on Netflix. Is that the one that's making all the news? Netflix is telling people to stop saying that he's hot because it's uh, Zach Efron that's playing him. No, that's a separate. So there's. there's oh, a, OK. I got to. There's a there's a movie coming out with Zach Efron. This is. Um, a documentary made uh, primarily from like uh, interview recordings of, of Ted Bundy. Okay. Um, kind of laced in with like a historical recount counting of what's going on and stuff like that. Um, and the, <laughs> I was talking to someone at work about this. And the, and the thing that I really appreciate about this Ted Bundy series, the four hours is that it goes from kind of that, like, uh, sensationalism of like he was a very charismatic, charming, a- attractive guy, blah blah blah, in the beginning. And the more you watch over these these four hours, 
the more he becomes just like tedious and boring and like like the only reason he got away with it as much as he did was because there was no internet you know because like information sharing between states and stuff was almost impossible so like the moral of like this four hour story basically is like there was nothing special about this guy and and it's so it's funny that this movie's coming out and the movie is emphasizing like his charisma and stuff like that and it's causing people to like have a bad reaction because it's in poor taste but that's yeah i mean the mania of the time was like there were people that were like kind of hooked on how charming this dude was so like yeah. it's it's accurate like people did feel that way so. yeah and yeah and that sucks right so people are because I, I that's i guess I, i'm again kind of confusing the two right because i've seen all this stuff about mm-hmm. the netflix one and then i'm seeing zach efron's picture everywhere is ted bundy <laughs> so i'm assuming yeah. that zach efron is ted bundy in this thing um you know that's that's where i'm at like yeah we don't want to make him into a hero we don't want to make him into a likable guy but if it's a if it's a, a an accurate um portrayal then let it be what yeah. it is let people understand why he was able to have this influence so one thing that happens a lot is um i, I we we judge people um based on their appearance right you know you know you know you do it you know i do it whatever right you see somebody walk into um, you know, your place of business or, or you're, you're walking down the street and you go, oh, that's a shady looking motherfucker. I got to watch my wallet. Yeah. Right. Or you see a woman that looks a certain way and you immediately have some kind of like idea about who she is. Um, you know, people took this guy's, you know, you know, fairly decent looking guy who's really charismatic and they let their guard down. Right. And yeah. what happened ultimately is he killed a bunch of women and this was his his M.O. Um, he was the one, right? And I might not. He's the one who would his arm in a cast. Hey, lady, can you help me? Yeah, he did that. I hurt my arm, and then he'd like push him into a van. Yep. Yeah, um, I can tell you with some certainty that there are plenty of guys that you could pick out to put in that same situation, and women are not going near that van, even pre Ted mm-hmm. Bundy. So, sure. um, I think it's important to portray him accurately, especially if it's going if it's going to serve as a um, you know, a, a historical recollection of what happened, but also as a warning of what could happen. So. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's tricky because like his, his case when it was covered was probably one of the first like nationally covered serial killer kind of situations. Like in the, mm-hmm. what would it be? The early eighties? Like there was like real heavy, like obviously, you know, Manson family and all that stuff. But like, um, he was kind of the first celebrity killer, uh, aside from like a Manson kind of person who was, um, was not liked, you know, but like fucking Bundy had groupies and stuff basically. Um, which is kind of sick and everything, but yeah, they have to portray him in the way that he was. So it's, it's interesting to see this, like all the hubbub, uh, and I, and it's a trailer for a, for a movie. It's not the whole movie. So like, I'd imagine <laughs> oh, yeah. that like, you know, maybe he does turn out to be just this like hopeless scumbag, you know, that's how they portray him in the I end mean, of the movie. Like, I mean, why, why would we wait to see the evidence before we pass judgment? What <laughs> oh, <God>. are <laughs> you fucking crazy? Uh, um, outrage culture, my friend, outrage culture, people, there are people oh, who sit God. around and wait for things to be pissed off about. Here we so. go. Hey, open that door. Well, it's true, though. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is there. I mean, you know, I, I've seen backlash because the next Ghostbusters m- movie isn't going to be about women. 
But isn't being outraged by the outrage culture also kind of outrage culture? Oh, I'm not outraged by it. I just kind of rolled my eyes at it. Is 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 all I'm saying? Oh, but okay. I mean, I was just, so like, I was just confused about the backlash. <laughs> so one of I've never seen it, but I understand Ghostbusters is a well loved movie, right? Um, there was the Ghostbusters. There's the Ghostbusters movie that came out a couple of years ago that was that was was received okay. I don't think it was super well received by people, and now they want to you know re refire up the franchise. And immediately before anybody's seen the movie, there's outrage. So, and I outrage because that's what I read in an article. I don't know. I don't spend any time on Twitter anymore, so I have no idea if there was Twitter outrage or not. Um, Jason Reitman's making that movie, and his dad Ivan Reitman made the original Ghostbusters. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So there you go. I'm excited there you about go. it. I am probably not going to see that one either. So. Yeah, yeah, we know. You're just going to watch fucking CW. Now, if the CW does a Ghostbusters TV <laughs> show. <laughs> oh, all right. There you go. I got your word on that. Yep. That's probably not going to happen. Are we done? It's been a long we're episode. So done. Oh, my God. It's We're so done. <laughs> uh, what's um, next? Next week. Um, so you're going to get next week's episode a little late, as one of your hosts will not be in town. Um, but uh, Fulcher's. We missed Vultures when it came out last week because we were busy. One of us was busy in the middle of the book when Vultures came out. One of us started the book like five days after Vultures came out. So, um, yeah, yeah, we're going to finish off the Miriam Black series for good, for once and for all, yeah. next week on uh, Unbooked. You got started. What are you thinking so far? Uh, so far, so good. I will say that I have to separate a little bit. <sighs> So it's reading really quickly after the three musketeers. But then one of the other things that's happening, and I want you to picture this, think about Miriam Black. Think about Miriam Black's thoughts on um, uh, walking into a Walmart. This does not happen in the book, but just think about the kind of things. Now contrast that with you just finished the three musketeers and you're reading (laughs) Miriam Black's inner dialogue about society. So it's a little bit of a, like a culture shock kind of thing. It's a little bit jarring and, and, like I said, I have to separate myself a little bit because it's not doing the book any favors. You come off reading something yeah. super eloquent. <laughs> you know what I mean? So right, right. Um, I'm sure that I will be able to cleanse the palate, so to speak. But I'm uh, I'm about 20% in. And yeah, so far, so good. I like the direction the story is going in. Awesome. All right. Any, any last things or should we uh, fucking bury this thing? let's uh let's put it to bed um thanks for listening uh patreon contribute sorry there wasn't a spoiler um a spoiler uh, <laughs> uh, uh, episode yeah, yeah this week um it was just go back rewind 90 minutes and you'll hear the spoiler talk for this week but thank you for being a valued patron as always and until next time i'm livia snedden and i'm rob olson keep reading <laughs>